you have a Bible with you, open with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to take a break this week from our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I need to come before you as your pastor and let you know that I, for some time, have been watching the increasing tensions in our nation and around the world as it surrounds different people groups and how they view one another and how they treat one another. And I haven't really said much about it, to be honest, because I didn't know really what to say. Additionally, I didn't think that some of those issues were a predominant issue in our church culture, specifically at Christ Community Church. But as the latest events began happening in Charlottesville, if you're not familiar what's going on there, there's an alt-right Wicked, godless, evil rally, carrying swastikas, making the high Hitler sign, spewing hate. And I couldn't, I couldn't stay silent. But in lieu of talking about what we are against, I want to compel us to what we are for. As followers of Jesus Christ, as Christ's community church, I want to cast vision for what we are for. This is not a sermon for or against our freedoms to gather and have differing views. I'm not interested in discussing that. This is not a sermon talking about how one specific group is evil or more evil than the other. I'm not interested in talking about that. What I am interested in doing is as God's people going before a holy God and allowing him and his word to examine our hearts, beginning with us, to identify and to begin by his grace extracting our own hate, judgment, and racism. It must begin here. It must begin now. I once read a quote that said, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. And so I endeavor to the best of my ability to cast some vision from the word, and I intend over the years to improve in doing so. I don't have a main point, and I don't have points on the screen. I want to speak to your heart today from God's word. I want us to understand our identity if we are in Christ. And I want you to hear me. If you're here today and you have not yet been born again, that means you do not yet know and trust and love the person of Jesus Christ, then my hope and heart is that today you will hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus and that he will step in and change your life. I want you to hear today that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you struggle with racist attitudes or thoughts and you call them something else or you're just speaking truth or you're just not PC, my prayer is to call you from that to way more. Because racism, a lot of isms are sin in any form. Racism, chauvinism, feminism, classism, all of those are missing the mark of what God intended. They're overreactions to things that ultimately base the standard upon ourselves and our opinions rather than on God's glory, God's standard, and his holiness. And so we need to recalibrate and realign around those truths and come with humble hearts as we allow him to begin to redirect our hearts and our actions and our attitudes. The Apostle Paul is writing another correspondence to the church in Corinth. 
At the beginning of chapter 5, he speaks about the desire to be away from the body with God, that this body is merely a tent that is a holding ground for um, our, our, our souls, but ultimately one day we will then be released from these tents and sent to God in heaven with God forever. He then acknowledges that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema seat in verse 10 is speaking of something that still remains. It's a large bench for justice that we will stand ultimately before God and be exposed at the throne of Christ. The good, the bad, the otherwise. And it may be to pertain to gifts. It may be a trial to affirm and show our faith. But ultimately, we will give account. And that's why this idea of trusting Jesus and then living however you would like is inconsistent with the teachings of the Bible. That when we hope and trust in Jesus, it is a free gift, but it calls for change and obedience. So then Paul picks up in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear, literally the terror of the Lord, knowing that God is who he says he is and that he will accomplish all that he has promised and set out to accomplish. That God is other, he is holy, he is perfect, he is right. We are imperfect, we are broken, we are sinful, we rebel against God. This great vast disparity between a holy and perfect God should elicit from us a sober assessment of who we are apart from Christ and should cause terror. Because we know the fear of God, this deep reverence and respect, we persuade others. So the motivation for persuasion is to not get more people to become like us, but to call more people to become like Christ. Not to get people to align on our team or our tribe, but that they might be realigned to God himself. That's the motive. That's the why. And it builds from here. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known to your conscience. We are not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For we are, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. What is Paul talking about? Several times in Paul's correspondence with the church in Corinth, he reminds them that he is not setting out again to establish his authority over them. Rather, he is leaning into the authority that has already been established by God for God in his life. And so Paul is speaking with authority into their lives, and he's saying, hey, if we seem crazy and out of our minds, it is for God. Now, mind you, Paul is the guy who went into a town, was teaching, was stoned to death, they thought, drug outside of town, and when he woke up, he crawled back into the same town to continue preaching. That's crazy town. Okay, most of us realize when people try to kill us with rocks, maybe it's time to move on. But instead, he got back right back up, went back in there because God had called him to, and he appeared crazy. So he says, if, it's, if we are out of our mind, it's for God. If we appear in our right mind, if we think soberly about things, it's to serve you. It's to help you. Notice he doesn't say, it's for my preference. Paul was exemplifying and living out loving God and loving others. The beauty of worshiping Christ is that he far overshadows our preferences and desires. He far overpowers our sin and our deceptiveness against God. He far overthrows the work of the enemy in our lives, and he compels us and calls us to more of himself. In verse 14 and 15, 
This passage, I want you to know, is one of my life passages. It, it, it reorients our approach to God, our approach to other people. It answers a lot of the questions of why. It, it speaks to the motive of why and how we do specific things. Paul is about to answer, hey, if I seem out of my mind and crazy, it's for God. If I seem sober-minded, it's for you. Why? Why? Why do we do this? Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, compels, constrains. We're captured by the love of Christ. And I've talked to many people recently who haven't really felt God lately, whether because of trauma in their life or hardships, they have felt far from God. They might know that God is there, but because life is life and we are human, they may not be feeling the nearness of God. Even though they are not feeling the nearness of God, the love of Christ isn't merely a feeling to be experienced, but a proactive nature of our God by sending his only son, Jesus, to live into history to obey the laws and the prophecies, to die a death of brutality and murder on the cross, to bear sin, death, and Satan's wrath so that God might win victory once and for all. He was dead and buried, and by God's power was risen from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan. That's what it means when we tell people Jesus loves you. That's what it means when we tell people that God is love. We're not talking about some emotional captivating, warm, fuzzy, tingly. We're talking about an all-powerful, holy, consequential God who would have been right to abolish us, but rather he, he rescues us. The love of Christ, the proactive love of God constrains us, it compels us, it holds us, it sends us, it allows us to be empowered against injustices, it frees us from the bondage of sin that we love, it liberates us from our preferences into God's preferences. The love of Christ, it controls us, it compels us, it constrains us. Why? Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Friends, before we talk about injustice or racism or classism or that group or this group, we've got to embrace the gospel. That Jesus Christ died for all people groups. Abraham was pre-Jewish. And God's covenant that God made with himself was that through Abraham, the nations would be blessed. The vehicle in which God had called, saved, ordained, and sent was God's people Israel, of whom our Jewish Middle Eastern-looking Savior was born into that culture, into the authority of that law, under the prophetic utterances of the prophets, and then dying after the accusations of his own people at the hands of the Roman enemy. And he did so that the power of the resurrection would bring the power of God and liberation to all types of people, not from their current plight, but from the consequence of their sin. 
and that those who really have been born again and freed from their sin no longer live for themselves or their kingdom. Paul says here they live for him who for their sake Christ died and rose again. The first thing we've got to understand is that if we say that we are in Christ, we are called to live our lives in obedience to Jesus, not out of obligation, but out of gratitude. There's a gratitude to our Jewish Savior for doing what we could never do. And while being beaten by his enemies, praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In giving up all of his claims and rights of being God, being crushed under the wrath of God for the good of the people of God, and yet we want to live our lives not as a thank you to the Lord, but as entitled children who get to flaunt our preferences. Church, we must do better, beginning with myself. In the way I view humanity, in the way I view other people, I struggle with thinking I'm better than people. I've struggled at times thinking I'm better than other groups of people or ethnicities of people. I'm a sinner. That is sin. It offends God in whose image we all have been created in. It's heresy to buy into that belief. I'm privileged. When I was 19 years old, I was on probation, as many of you know, for a car crash that resulted in the death of a friend of mine. On probation. Not in jail. Not in prison. On probation. And an African-American probation officer, and she says, you're privileged. I was so offended. My father, I think, even complained. But as I began to work in the literacy lab, tutoring folks for their GED as an 18-year-old punk, Men in their 50s who, in the state of Texas, if you're on probation for a felony, then you have to work towards getting your GED. And I began to hear stories of different people and different backgrounds. I'm overwhelmed by the ways that I have been privileged. I don't feel any guilt towards that end. I feel the responsibility of how I live my life in response to that. I was sitting with Bryant Lee. Some of you know Pastor Bryant. He is black. And he asked me a while back, I was like, Brian, I don't know how to engage with this well. And he's like, well, you shouldn't feel any guilt. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, how many slaves do you own? Well, none. I said, how many slaves did your grandparents own? None. Great-grandparents? Well, my Jewish great-grandparents were coming over from Europe at the time. And before that, my other family fought in the North in the Civil War. He said, then don't feel guilty. It's not even really about you being white. It's about you being a pastor who's a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. God has given you white skin. You didn't choose it. You have white skin. And so preach the gospel and call people to embrace the gospel and call people to liberation from sin of judgment to the life of grace given through Jesus Christ. So friends, today, this is not a shame on us. It's a rather a call to us to more of God to an enjoyment of Jesus, to an understanding of who we are in Christ, that we have 
been loved, that we have been paid for, that we have been purchased. Therefore, we do have responsibility to live as a thank you to our holy God who gave his only son so that, why, so that you and I might not perish, mean be destroyed apart from God, but be adopted by God. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no more. Paul is speaking to the fact that Paul, being a Pharisee of Pharisees, a persecutor of the church, he hated Jesus. He would have been one in the crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him. He wanted him destroyed because he believed he was a heretical Jewish man going against the will of God and the kingdom of God. He hated him. And he says this. He says, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. He looked at the exterior of Christ, the actions of Christ, the words of Christ, and he made a judgment call. He says, but because of this transformation, because of Christ, we've been given eyes to see, ears to hear, the ability to understand that the motives and actions of people are deep. The way we view people isn't one better than the other, but all created by God and affected by the same thing called sin. There is no room for racism in the church. If you are a Christian and you hold a higher view of your race or nationality opposed to anyone else, I would say you're guilty of idolatry and heresy, and I invite you in the name of Jesus to change your thinking and to repent. To be humble enough before a holy God who knows your thoughts and your heart and your attitude and begin to own it. And you may not, you may not have any racist thoughts or you love everybody and that's not how you are, but there's some way that you think in your own assessment, you're better than someone else. And that's not the definition of love. That's not being constrained by the love of Christ. It's not being compelled because of his life, death, and resurrection. It's, it's a worldview based upon yourself and what you see in the mirror. But before you hear this and say, you know, you're right, there are areas and pockets of arrogance or pride or racism in my own heart, I'm going to try harder. I want you to stop first. The good news is that whatever our sin and sinful attitudes or thoughts or reactions are, God doesn't call you to go sort it out and then come back to him. He calls you to himself so that he can change you. Our identities change our personhood changes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, therefore, in view of who God is, what God has promised to do, the proactive work of God on the cross through Jesus Christ, through all this, therefore, if, in view of this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That although while you might living into or out of some broken patterns of sin that no longer has to be the defining factor of who you are. If you are in Christ and have trusted in Christ, Jesus Christ redefines you and says with authority who we are. And he says that you're made new, that you are a new creation, that you're no recycled goods, but made from dead to alive, from old to new. You're coming out of the darkness into the light 
This newness of life that we have alone in Jesus Christ is our only hope to begin thinking and behaving and living differently. You're a new creation. It is very easy for me to live defined by my previous sin, to allow that to be what identifies me, to allow me to live into that and all the narratives that go with it. But this redefines it for us. The stories of your past are not your final story if you're in Christ. The stories of your past and of your present and of your future are all little stories that are building up to the ultimate story of God's compassion and transformational love through his son Jesus. Beginning to live into the fact that you are a new creation, that sin no longer has the same reign, that you're no longer bond slaves and servants to sin, which leads to death, but you're now slaves to life and righteousness in Christ Jesus, brings about a different way of living, a different way of expressing, a different capacity for compassion and mercy. The liberty to come and say, I do struggle with this sin. My heart and my attitudes are hostile towards certain people or groups or people who think different or believe different religions. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has been put to death, passed away, and the new has come. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Your salvation, your new life, is not because you became smart enough, wise enough, or convinced. This new life is from God. It is gift from God given to us, and that's why we worship God and not a mirror. We respond to God who is our hero and who is our Savior, who comes to bring rescue to all people. And it's from God. All of it is from God who through his son Jesus Christ reconciled, that is, he made you right with himself. I talk to people and they say, well, I just need to get right with God. And I ask them, maybe you have that attitude or that upbringing, I want to ask you, have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins at some point in your life? If the answer is yes, you are right with God. You need to start living into that. If you have not yet placed your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, then you do need to be made right with God. And the only way you can be made right with God is trusting in God's son, Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, believing that his death was enough. His resurrection is enough for you to be loved and adopted and accepted and set free from all the junk that we bring to the table. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. But he did something else. And this is important, and I need you to hear me. Some of you might be critically thinking through everything I'm saying. Maybe you're feeling a bit defensive. My heart isn't to attack you or to attack us, but to call us to more. And you have to hear this, that there is responsibility that comes with this grace. It's a free gift. You can't earn it, and you can't keep it. He gives it, but you live into it. And understanding your identity of who you are in Christ enables you and empowers you to live into this new identity. He reconciled us to himself, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, 
and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors, representatives for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is the purpose and meaning. He doesn't just save you so that you can go to heaven later. He adopts you and makes you new so that you can partner with God in his efforts and mission that will succeed to transform this world, to soften hearts, to put an end to hate, to elevate the true love of God. And and we are invited to be a part of that. If you call yourself a Christian and you have been born again, then God says that you are therefore a minister of reconciliation. And here's what it is. It's not just helping one people group make right with other people groups. It's helping the world, all people groups, reunite and be made right with God. We don't need another politician. We need a revival, friends. We need Jesus. The power of this gospel in our lives that overflows into the lives of others. As ambassadors and as representatives, if you are the only example that people or your children see of Jesus, what gospel is your life preaching? We're all preaching a gospel with our life. What is it? What's the good news in your life? Taking notes, write that down. What gospel am I preaching with my life? What is the good news of your life? That you work hard and you get paid well and you have nice things? That you don't do the things bad people do? Or that the purpose of this life is to acquire as much as we can and keep as much as we can? What is the good news that you're preaching with your life? If you're a Christian, you're a new creation. You've been adopted in, empowered by the Spirit, given the Word of God. To be a minister of reconciliation, helping people who are disconnected from God to be reconnected to God. To love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. To understand the consequence and the wages of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We're all preaching a gospel. All of us. The question is, is what gospel am I preaching with my life? But this is interesting. He says that in verse 19, that is in Christ God was Reconciling the world to himself, that seems pretty important. Amen? God's reconciling the world, the rebellious, sinful world to himself. But look, and entrusting to us, entrusting. We have some excellent babysitters in our church. And when we leave them with our children, we are entrusting our very life to those young ladies. Entrusting something valuable, giving management stewardship of. He's entrusted you and I as gospel proclaimers with our lives to our neighbors and coworkers, to our children, to our communities, to our world. With our lives and when necessary, with our words, that we are ambassadors, representatives, messengers for this risen God. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Our identity is now representatives of Christ. If you are a Christian, a little Christ, then you must understand that there is a gravity that comes with our calling. That we are called to live as ambassadors, representatives for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. The message of the gospel is being made in us and through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So even in this message, this letter that Paul is writing to the people of Corinth, he's urging them again and again, be reconciled to God through Christ. Be made right with God through Christ. Let your hard heart be broken and trust in Christ. Let your sin that you love become not appetizing. Therefore, your love is expanding for Christ. Let the person and work of Jesus be the power we need to transform our thinking and begin to transform our community and our state and our nation and our world. Be conformed to the image of Christ. Be understanding as an ambassador of Christ. Be a messenger for Christ. You are an ambassador. You are new. You are a new creation, Christian. You've been given a vision and a mission to live into through God's presence and by his sending of us to people that don't yet know him. But before we do that, you must be reconciled to God. I'm convinced increasingly more that down in the South, there are many people who go to church who have never been born again. They've never been exposed by their sin before a holy God. They've never realized the depth and the gravity of their attitudes and thoughts and actions. They might dismiss and say, yeah, I know I've done these, 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 these bad things. I feel bad about that. I need God. But they've never been undone by the presence of God and the power of the resurrected Christ in their life, meaning they have never said exposed, saying, I have sinned against the perfect God and deserve immediate eternal death. Rescue me. And to be honest, with the level of unforgiveness and impatience and lack of the fruit of the Spirit that we experience not only in our church, but in churches in the area, I would say maybe some of you need to be reconciled to God for real. And if you're offended, then I want you to press into that offense and say, God, am I offended because I don't know you or am I offended because I don't like what he is saying? I'm not here to hurt you. I want to help you. But the reality is you can live all your life giving lip service to God, throwing a tip in the basket, serving when you can, doing all these nice things and quote unquote being a good person. And then the scary passage in Matthew 7, when the, these people who profess the name of Christ get to heaven, Jesus says, get away from me for you, for you worker of lawlessness, you evildoer, for I don't even know you. I want you to know Christ. I'm not interested in building a brand. I'm not interested in having another cool gathering of Christians. I'm encouraging us to know Jesus because as we press into Jesus, that's where the power is. That's where we're able to open our mouth and some eternity comes out so that when we speak into these issues of racism or police brutality, we don't do so with hostility towards people, but with grace and love calling people to dialogue, exchanging condemnation with curiosity. Let me understand that more. I don't get why this is happening. Can you please help me see where you're coming from rather than you're wrong, I'm right, I'm better. That's why I preach the gospel every week. Some of you don't know Jesus. And if I specifically thought one of you didn't really know Jesus, trust me, I'd have a conversation. So you're like, is he talking about me? He doesn't know what I do. I'm not. 
I'm saying statistically and realistically, it's very easy in our culture to not love God, but to give it lip service. Many of us want the benefits of God without the responsibility of following God. We want to have the God-like power, the God-like blessing, without submitting to the person of God. And at the root of racism or any other ism, we're putting ourselves on the throne and calling ourselves the judge who has the right to make judgment calls of other people. We don't. Verse 21, if you've never memorized scripture, should be the first one you memorize. If you haven't memorized this one, you should. If you're not even a Christian, memorize this, and I hope it haunts you in a very good way. For our sake, he made him, he's talking about Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is a day of salvation. God made him Jesus, who was perfect, obeyed every law, fulfilled every prophecy, to become sin. He became a curse by being hung on a tree. Cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. Jesus became a curse as our substitute on the tree. He became a sacrifice in our place. He became the atonement, meaning the payment for our sin on the cross. He took the physical and spiritual wrath that sin calls for, the death that sin deserves. And God did not allow that to have the last say, but that was very consequential. Christ became sin so that you and I might become right you don't have to fight about being right about certain points because the most important thing to be right about is our rightness before God. And God has made a way through Jesus for us to be made right. You don't get right with God. God makes you right with himself. You trust that. You believe that. You lean into that. You hope in that. You press into that. You push into that. He engages our heart, our will, our emotions and changes us. This is idea, it's a big word, imputation, so I'll make a word that we all understand, deposit. We know what it's like to have money deposited into our account. I remember when I was in college, I was privileged because I had parents who would deposit money in my account. I did nothing to earn it other than being their son, and I didn't even choose that. I love the imputation of cash into my expense account. This is the exchange, the transaction. There was a transaction that took place so that relationship could happen. Many of us approach God accepting a transaction and then living like we've got to pay him back. I've said it before, but the idea of paying God back is like throwing a penny towards the national debt every so often. If you don't know math, that's never going to fix anything. You're not going to pay God back and he doesn't call you to. He frees you to live and experience his power. For his sake, he made him to be sin. So sin was placed, deposited on Jesus, who knew no sin. So his account was clean, yet he bore it all. He had it all deposited in his account so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christian, you have been made right. Not because you're smarter 
or because you're from a certain nationality, but because God has done it for us through Christ and invited us to receive with great joy this grace. And he quotes Isaiah 49. He says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is a day, friends, where if you have not yet placed your hope and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, today's a day that you say yes to Jesus and no to sin. That you say yes to life and no to death. That you run towards the light from the darkness. That you place your trust in him and receive forgiveness and adoption as sons and daughters. It's a day that you begin to live into that real calling of being brand new and leaning into that identity as an ambassador for Christ. And if that's you and you're like, man, I'm, I'm not really sure if I've ever placed my hope and trust in Jesus, then just where you are, you can cry out to God and say, God, I, I've sinned against you. I deserve to be separated, but Jesus, you made a way for me to be connected. And you can say that in your own word, and he hears you, and he's doing it, and so it should bring gratitude and hope. And so I want to make three observations and three recommendations, and then we'll be done. Number one, the main problem we're seeing in Charlottesville, in the Middle East, in terror attacks, in our hearts, is sin. These are symptoms in various places of judgment or violence or oppression. Those are symptoms, but the root is all the same. There's one source for all of that corruption outside of us and within us. It's sin. It's the, the nature and desire to continue and perpetually miss the mark. We're bent away from God. Number two is this. The solution is our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. Can we speak up or speak out? Sure. Can we help where we can? Yes. Should we do something? We must. But at the same time, we cannot ignore the problem ultimately is sin. The solution is our Savior, Jesus. Once we begin to live into that and embrace that, we begin through His Holy Spirit guided by the Word of God, uniting with the people of God to become creative like our Creator. We begin to think of solutions that are unique and different, that are otherworldly. We, we begin to think of ways that we can engage in these dialogues and having these conversations that are uncomfortable and awkward, but we do so anyways because Christ has freed us to be able to have those conversations and to do hard things. The problem is sin, the solution is our Savior, and the calling, number three, is reconciliation through salvation. Christ is the answer. The way that people are reconciled ultimately is to call them to Christ, and then through Christ, call them to each other. And until we can sort out some reconciliation within the church and within our own hearts to be forgiving and releasing in the same way God has forgiven us and releases us, then who are we to speak out about any other issue? Because we have such a heavy log in our eye. Until we repent and lay down our own judgments and our own pride and our own impatience and our own lack of love and for some our own lostness and lean into who Christ is and the fact that we're a new creation that we're called to be ambassadors which are representatives for Christ. He doesn't say, you should become an ambassador for Christ. He says, we are. You're either a good ambassador or a poor ambassador, but you're an ambassador nonetheless. 
So the problem is sin. The solution is our Savior. The calling is reconciliation through salvation. So what does that look like practically? It means that we approach these issues with humility and not judgment. We put away condemnation and we come with a heart of curiosity. I have a friend who was in the news recently, African-American pastor with his wife. We're driving after a date night, uh, I believe in River Oaks or one of those, Bentwood or one of those areas right there, and they were pulled over by an off-duty police officer and harassed. And when I heard the story, it wasn't just like they're being super sensitive. They were harassed because they were black in a neighborhood that they didn't belong in. And sure, I'm sure white people are harassed. I'm sure all people are harassed, but it's just arrogant to say, well, racism isn't an issue. No, it is. And it begins in our own hearts. We've got to repent. That's how we start. We have habits and attitudes and thoughts. But humility, and humility comes from rightly understanding the power and holiness of our God. Embracing and engaging in our identity and who we are in Christ. That should humble us. Shift our gaze from the mirror and hoping in our abilities to our Savior. But what I'm seeing happen is even Christians are attacking pride with pride. All it does is make things worse. I'm tempted to do that. When I'm confronted in an arrogant situation, I respond. My reaction is arrogant in return. Through my embarrassment and through my hurt, I then react in the same way. So we must pursue humility by pursuing Christ. The second way that we respond in these situations is through prayer. And I don't mean like before meals we you know, say, oh, God, help Charlottesville. One thing that Stephanie and I felt compelled to do as we were praying on our retreat this summer was to begin a prayer meeting for our church on a monthly basis. The first Thursday of every month, we're opening our home for the time being. We don't have child care because we don't have space for that. But we had our first prayer meeting a couple weeks ago, and we gather and we pray for God's glory. We confess our sin. We thank God for his kindness. We ask God to move in our community, to draw people to himself, to reveal sin in our own life, in our own hearts. And so we're trying to be proactive. That's something that we instituted a couple weeks ago. First, very small to work through it, but First Thursday of every month, we're going to be praying. And we'll be praying through things like this, and we'll be asking God for his power. Because this is his church. This is his community. This is his planet. All of these people are his creation. And some are called to be his people. And if we're not praying, we're relying on our own capacity. And we need to repent. And the last thing I recommend is evangelism over activism. Yesterday, I had the privilege with my friend, Pastor Scott, over at Silver Springs Baptist Church, and I intend for us to partner more proactively next year with them, handing out hundreds of backpacks to families and shared the gospel with many. I believe 35 people trusted the Lord yesterday. We were able to share the gospel and talk to people about Jesus. The thing that will change our world more than activism is evangelism. If evangelism leads to then more proactivity in other ways, then that's great. But until we step up our game in sharing the gospel with people who don't know God, what are, we, what are we calling people to? Being nice? That doesn't work. We need to call people to Christ. And so the posture we take, church, is humility, not judgment. Prayer and evangelism over activism. 
having conversations with people, hearing their story, and sharing the story of Christ. It doesn't mean we don't feel frustrated, and doesn't mean there aren't valid points articulating frustrations with many sides. But when there's an overt acts of symbolism and racism, we must stand up and say, let's take the log out of our own eye so we can go after the speck and say, hey, that's a growing movement that is not the answer. It's not the answer. It's hate. It's wicked. It's godless. It will be destroyed one day. The answer we have is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he has made a way for us to be made right with him, that he calls us to examine ourselves before the holiness of who he is and to give ourselves over to him, to live into the identity as his ambassador, to be people of reconciliation so that people are reconciled to God. And without reconciliation to God, it's really difficult at times for prideful people to be reconciled to each other. My heart is reconciliation. I fight towards it. I'm persistent about it. As soon as I learn that someone is upset with me, I make strides to try to make things right as much as I'm able to because I'm a minister of reconciliation. One of the ways that we model the gospel is we don't let things linger. We go after those things and we seek ways to reconcile. And yeah, it may take a few months and it may take a mediator and it may take some things to work together, but ultimately we have to, as Christians, fight for peace and reconciliation amongst ourselves before we point the finger at other churches and at other groups and at other people. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he set out beforehand that we would walk in them. I'm going to spend a few moments. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and I just want to lead us through a little time of prayer before we come to the table. If you're here this morning, I'm so glad you're here. All of you, if you're here this morning, you're not yet a believer of Jesus, I'd love to talk with you. We're going to have a few of our other elders along the side available to speak with you. If you want to trust Jesus but want to know what the next step looks like, we'd love to talk with you. If you're here and you're a follower of Christ and you're like convicted because of your hard heart or your sin or your judgment or your racism, I love the word of God where it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christian, you can be and have been forgiven. You will be accepted. Confess, agree with God. Experience that cleansing. There's more of God to have. 